In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Sandy here. Our Money Tales guest today is Steve Demaray. With 30 plus years experience in financial services and financial planning, one question has perplexed Steve. With abundant information available, why do so many people struggle with money? Here's what he's learned. When it comes to money, people don't need more books and videos. They need greater self-understanding. Less info, more insight. Cammie here. Steve is a passionate money coach who lives and breathes what he stands for. We appreciate him sharing the arc of his personal financial experience and the insights he picked up along the way that support our goal for the Money Tales podcast of helping listeners have honest, values-based, productive money conversations. In our financial insight at the end of the interview, we pick up on Steve's emphasis on the importance of keeping a cash reserve and discuss different approaches to building a cash reserve that best meet your needs. But first, here's our conversation with Steve Demeray. Welcome, Steve Demeray, to Money Tales. It's really great to have you. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks, Kim and Sandy. We'd love to have you start us off with a brief summary of your journey to get you to this point. Maybe share with us a couple of the pivotal moments that led you to this conversation. It's been a long journey, actually, and it started way back, probably. So I've had exposure to financial decisions and the financial services industry almost my entire working career. I started out of high school and sold real estate, believe it or not. So I was driving a Chevy Camaro and living with my parents and selling houses to people. So I learned a lot about people and how they make a major decision. I left real estate, not returned to Bodie University as a mature student, and I got a business degree. And so I started to look more at the corporate world. And my first job was in commercial credit. And this was through sort of the mid-80s up until sort of 2000. And again, a great insight because I saw what successful businesses did. I saw what unsuccessful businesses did. I I was very instructive. I stayed in banking. And in the latter part of my banking career, it was more working with individuals, not directly, but the organization I was with, that was their focus. And again, so more sort of insight and decisions, what people were doing. And the reason I mentioned that is that one of the things I concluded was that people really struggle with money. I mean, they, I'm not talking about sophisticated things like fancy investments and sexy strategies. I'm just talking about not spending more than they bring in, that kind of thing, the stuff we read about in the papers all the time. And what I kind of noticed was that it was hard to find anybody that was really kind of providing that sort of thing helping people just almost across the kitchen table, just get a handle on their money. Very foundational. I left the corporate world around early 2000s 
And then I became a certified financial planner. And I thought, yeah, great. This is where I wanted. When I was working with people and I would say, well, look, you know, we did this financial plan a year ago and it said you were going to put, you know, pick a number, $15,000 in your retirement plan. Did you do that? And they'd look back and they'd laugh and they'd say, oh, where was I going to get $15,000? It's like, well, here, here, let me pull the plan out. Let me blow the dust off it. I think your cat was actually at this and got some scratches on it. And so here, right here. And say, oh, they'd laugh. And, oh my goodness, where do we get? Well, the plan says you could. And so it's like, well, let's just check this, right? Let's see what where did we go wrong? And I'd look at all the assumptions that led to us to conclude that this money would be available. And what I concluded was what was wrong in the forecast, if you will, was they didn't know what their lives cost. And that number that I would assume was correct, because I assume they knew what they spent was way off. And I'm talking about in the order of often 100% off. And so all of a sudden, it made sense to me that if you thought you spent, pick a number, $75,000, it wouldn't matter, really. It doesn't matter what number you use. It wasn't 75, it was 125. It wasn't 50, it was 100. It wasn't 200, it was three and a quarter. And I'd say, well, how do you manage money? This is when I would hear the stories, right? And they would, it was anywhere from, we have no plan to, well, we use this software that we found, and then they would produce reams of paper and I'd say, well, what's your insight from that? And they go, honestly, we don't know what to make of any of this. And so, yeah, they were lost. People just really struggle with the basics of managing money. And that became the calling. They can't get out of my head. You know, that was 15 years ago. And I've been bent on trying to find solutions to that ever since. So many pivotal moments along the way. Steve, can you talk to us about your own relationship with money, maybe start us off in your early years growing up. What was money like in the household you grew up in? Yeah, I feel unfortunate because I was the product of parents who were referred to as the greatest generation who came through up through the depression and what they refer to as the dirty 30s, hard times. We hear sometimes people talking about those days today. And both my parents were from a rural uh, setting. My dad was a farmer. My mom was a country girl. I mean, it sounds like 1850, but it was 1944, actually. My dad was actually a lawyer and we did okay. We worked you know, we weren't rich or anything like that. But to go to the heart of your question, we always had more than enough. I didn't know probably until my 30s what my father made. My mother was fortunate enough she could stay home and look after the kids and work from home. The message I always got again and again was just because you can't doesn't mean you should. And so my dad, people like that generation, grew up on the farm and he was fixing tractors and cars at a young age, so he always fixed everything. And I'll tell you a funny story about my mom, who I just saw this morning. She's 94 and a half in a nursing home. You know, she's got a little dementia, but she's really in pretty good shape and she's happy. And so that's great. And we would always laugh. I had two sisters, older sisters, and we're all three years apart. So my mom would come up and she would present this beautiful out of the oven tray of usually it was brand muffins. And so we'd all look at each other and say, okay. <laughs> Why is mom? Why is mom making bran muffin? Right? Because it just—it's like there's something. There's a little trick to this. So we've got used to it. So we eat the bran muffins. Like, mom, what is in this bran? You put something in there. What is that thing? And she go, that's a nut. It's like, no, that's not a nut. <laughs> and so it were the Cheerios under the bottom of the Cheerio box. My mom when it got down to that last sort of inch, and nobody wanted it because they're kind of stale and gross, right? And so my mom would mix that in. I'll just use that example. Oh, there's- that's resourceful. <laughs> Right. And so to this day, I have cereal boxes that never waste food, not because I think it's some ethic that people today talk about and they should know, because we never threw anything out in my house. It was used, right? Power of modeling. And that was it. And whether it was my mom or my dad, fix it when you break it, buy things that last, spend less than you make, have some held away for the unexpected. And 
my mom, I'll just tell you a quick story because I think it's still telling and stuck with me. In my money coaching, what I talk when I talk to people, I always, when they say, how are we going to do this? And I say, well, before we talk about how, let's talk about why. And they sort of like, what do you mean? I said, well, let's talk about why you would want to get control of your money. And, you know, they'll say, well, you know, pay down debt or do this or do that. And it's like, yeah, yeah, I know. But if you pay down your debt, what would you do? Oh, well, I've actually just had this very conversation within the last week. Oh, well, I'd start building some investments. Okay, great. And so if you built a bulk of investments, what would you do? Oh, well, kind of struggle. And I said, so would you give it away? Would you spend it? This was a woman, mid-50s. She'd say, I really value education. I have grandchildren. I would love to contribute to their education when they're old enough. I said, that's your why. She said, right. I said, so you don't really want to pay off or build assets. You actually want money for your grandchildren. She said, that's what I want. I can work with that because I can find the heart in that. So I'm always looking for the why when people struggle with money and it really is just coming out of their head, budget, very heady, intellectual, analytical sort of thing. I want to get into the heart of it and then let's get the dollars to follow. So my dad had a why and he shared it with me. We had a neighbor who had started a new business. He immediately went out and just upsized their lifestyle in so many ways, bought pools, new cars, all the thing. And I thought, you know, my dad's a lawyer. Why don't, why don't we have some of this stuff, right? <laughs> I said to my dad one day, and I'm about 11, and I said to my dad, why does Mr. X next, or why do they, and, and Mrs. X was waving her new diamond ring in front of my mom's nose. I think my mom's a little bit of a Why do they have all this stuff? You're a lawyer. And my dad just looked at me and said, because I want to be objective about what I do. He telling that to an 11-year-old, what does that mean? And honestly, it was many years later, because I never forgot about it. I kind of understood that it was a weighty thing, but not fully sure, because what does 11-year-old, what does an 11-year-old know about objectivity? But later on, it did come back. So my dad's why, in terms of how we lived, was I'm never going to risk the safety and security of my family in living beyond my means. I know it's a roundabout way to get to the answer to your question, but it has stuck with me all the way. And I'll go further and say that when I see people and their struggles with money, I don't care really what the why is. All I care is that we go inside and find it and then match up what you're doing to support it. And that was the key, key thing. Really, honestly, it changed the direction of my life. And I spent my entire life living within my means as a money coach, I hope so, just so I can be objective about what I do. You're talking about the why and bringing the heart into it, because in our experience, that's so important. When you have an answer to why, there's purpose, right? And when you have a heart connection, it's just much easier to align all of your actions and your decision-making around that purpose and achieving it. Absolutely. I always confuse what I think it was Nietzsche who said, I'm paraphrasing, but you know, when we have a why, we're able to face up to any how. And, but if you just go at it with the how, you'll kind of get down the road a bit and you're saying, eh, I don't want to do this anymore. Again, the answer is, importantly, it's like, why am I doing this? Right. <laughs> Let's get clear on that. <laughs> That's right. There's no commitment without that purpose there. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Tell us about finding your why. I just think it's so important for people to really listen to that little voice in their head through all the noise and whatever it is that's inside their heart that wants to kind of get out and be set free. For me, I really feel kind of in a funny way in the corporate world. So I was an executive in a bank in my late 30s doing very well and good stuff that comes with that. 
And I, I really kind of feel like I was living my dad's life. I mean, there I was <laughs> going to work every day with a suit and looking very you know, responsible. And by the way, I, at that point, I was single. I had no wife, no daughter, you know, playing my dad. I really felt in a way because that was kind of the script that I thought. Here's what little boys do for my generation. We do what our dads did. But the other seed that my dad planted was even though, and this goes back to his wife and safety and security for his family, but he always said, really, the best thing you can do is work for yourself. So even though he didn't, uh, from time to time, he did have his own practice. But he, he said, really, the lofty bar that I think would be great would be, you know, if you ever could find a way to work for yourself. And that stuck. It stuck, it stuck, it stuck. And so what happened for me was in my late 30s, I really started to feel the vitality just drain out of me. I would drive, I would be heading up to the head office of my financial institution, who you know, would go remain nameless. And I kept, if I looked in the mirror, I'd be the color red aspirin. It's like, oh. And I would go in and there'd just be no life to what I did. Increasingly, as I got further on in the organization, my job became less about working with people in the client world and more about the back end of the corporation, the politics and the running and managing people and which is not really ever what I set out to do. And it almost made me ill, to be honest with you. And so, I, yeah. And so, I, I, no, don't feel so bad. It worked out. <laughs> uh, everybody has a, a journey. And I think it's easy to sort of say, I can't do that because I don't have the money. As a coach, what we're trained to do is help people move closer to their why now, even if it isn't the absolute pure reflection of what it is that they really want. I mean, if they want to be a rock drummer, I get it, right? But you have a couple of children and, you know, you do need some cash coming in to maintain the lifestyle, but how could you do that now? And people, when they hang it on money, what tends to happen is it gets very pointed in terms of what they see their options are. Their options are, I need more money to make this happen. What coaches see is actually, if we just put that aside, it has sort of a risk-free conversation about what other options might be, because coaches will see it a million different ways you could do this. But until they see that, so we want to get them thinking about what could they, well, you know, I suppose I could bang some drums with some friends in the garage. So, great. What else could you do? Well, I know some guys that, you know, do a gig at a bar. And, great. So maybe you could sub in for one of the guys when he's sick or something. You know, so it's not putting it off forever. It's moving towards it now. So for me, I developed what I called sort of a defensible, plausible plan to get myself out of the bank that sounded good for anybody who thought, why on earth would you do that? Leave that beautiful job that most people would think that's the best place you could ever be until I could figure it out. And then I backed up my finances to buy time. So it sounds like you had to get very far away from your why in order to realize that the why was missing. Yeah. The why for me was, it would be great to work on your own. The why sometimes, it's a winding path. It's not a direct arc. Don't get me wrong. That little voice, every time you want to throw in the towel and say, oh, why am I doing it? Why am I putting myself through this? And then you go through a couple of days and you wake up and it's going, what could you do today to just move a little closer? Here? I think, Darn. Okay. Well, you know, and now I don't ever think about my why anymore. I'm living my why. Yeah. And um, so I had to kind of, Try to not nail it down perfectly, but just start moving towards it and kind of trust that it would emerge and I would shape my way along that path. And Steve, tell us what it was like to, let's just focus in on a part of that journey. So you're leaving your, I'll call it cushy, your cushy corporate job. <laughs> Which it was. <laughs> you're going to start your own business, hang your shingle out. There's money implications involved there. 
for someone who's fascinated with money and really intrigued by how people have relate to their money, what was that like for you? And, and how did you work through that? It's not going to come as a surprise when I tell you that there was a voice from about 29 years earlier that said, I want to stay objective about what I do. And here was the dividing point. On one hand, I had a job that had me having to travel an hour in each direction. And so I rented a place in the middle because I didn't know which way I was going to go. I wanted to settle down and buy a house. I'm telling you already, you know this, that I also wanted to leave, right? And so if I really bought the house, that's probably not the right thing to do if I want to leave my job, right? I mean, it's, I, I'm going to need that money, that cushion. And I found this perfect place. It was a cool, funky bachelor townhouse. It was everything I wanted. And I so wanted to pull the trigger on it, right? Like that material thing was just sucking me in. And then I was able to pause. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) No, because, you know, you've been able to distance that and you're right. We all have that. But then it was like I could hear my dad saying, if you buy that place, are you going to be objective on your next move? It's like, no, I'm not. I'm going to be stuck to that job, you know, a little bit house poor. It means that I won't be able to leave. I was able to make that direct link. House, stay, no house, go. Because the capital that was to go to the house would be my cushion to take me through until I could get my business humming along. And then the other thing I did, I turned to an associate outside of the bank, a person I'd done work with, and I just arranged sort of some contract work that we had done together. Except now I was kind of working as an independent person that would give me a little bit of money every month for about a year. And so... The side gig. Well, it was a side gig that led to my ultimate gig. I mean, it was related. It wasn't just a thing. Right, but, right. But, Yeah, but the point was, I came to see that the house was a trap, and it was going to trap me in my whole life. And I really, I was miserable. So finally, all the things that other people wanted, which are great jobs and houses, at that time, I had to do what seemed contrary to what everybody else wanted, which was to say no to the great job and no to the house and stayed in it. Well, I rented on apartment. It was like hardship. But, you know, put all of that stuff aside. And by the way, in time, I've had nice houses. And I've had all the things I wanted. But so it's not ever, you're not going to have that, but maybe just not now and be comfortable with that, being able to defer that. That was a key piece. Steve, it's funny. You're not talking about money, but you are talking about money. So did you think about it from a financial, you know, this objectivity notion are you also thinking about money or is it it's related, obviously? Not really. I've had, maybe you can relate, maybe your listeners can. You know, I've had, I've lived in beautiful houses and lousy houses, driven crappy cars and nice cars, going back from, you know, school days and before, made lots of money, made not a lot of money. The quality of my life has really always come down, leaving health aside, because generally my health can fine. So I haven't had to worry about that. It's not, of course, always the case for folks, but it's come down to do things. Um, the quality of my relationships and the quality of what my purpose, that the degree to which I feel like I'm on purpose. After that, the rest of the stuff is just, you know, if I'm comfortable, I'm happy. It's when I'm miserable, it's when I'm off purpose. So to answer your question, yeah, money was, yeah, I needed, yeah, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be living in a dumpster. It's sad that there are unfortunate people, that's their reality, but I didn't have to either. I had a plausible plan to buy me time and faith that I could make it work. It was always about the why. It was never about the money. By the way, eventually, you know, the income was fine too. So, yeah, no problem. It all works out. It all works out. Yeah, you're speechless. Like, what? This guy's nuts. Why? What's he doing? Throwing it all away. No, I think I think that's great. I appreciate you walking us through your decision making factors because I think it's really important. 
I think people do make decisions. They might be lifestyle decisions and they have the lifestyle in mind, but they're not necessarily connecting it with the money and the job and it can throw folks off if they don't have that awareness. Yeah, the great example of that as a money coach is so often you know, people will call me and it's always like, so yeah, tell me a little bit about yourself, I'll ask. And I'll sort of just shut up and here's what they have to say. Like, well, about 18 months ago, I started a business. Or about 18 months ago, I, I don't know, I bought this big house. Or about 18 months ago, and as always, it's like the time they needed to call me was 18 months <laughs> ago, right? So they did that thing. And I was like, yeah, and how's that going up? Well, you know, there's some issues. And I'm wondering if you can help me out. It's like, well, I, you know, I possibly can. But it's not always what we do. Sometimes it's what we don't do. And really being intentional on not just getting caught in the emotion and the attraction of that thing you want to do, but just pausing some space into that and making sure, again, you've kind of got this plausible little plan that will keep it in there for a while so you can kind of see it happen. Mistakes cost money. I've seen it time and time again. So if we can stop those people from just you know, a better execution on, for example, a startup than you know, we can probably sidestep some of the things that otherwise we're going to potentially bump into. If I said to you that managing money is actually a creative act, I'm curious as to your feedback on that. What do you think? Either of you, both of you. Is, it, is managing money a creative act, do you think? I think there is a lot of creativity. When working with people in their personal finances, there's a lot of different puzzle pieces. And so I think there's some creativity in, in trying to figure out how best to put the puzzle together in a way that achieves the vision that the client has in mind. Steve, I don't. So I'll tell you the other side. I don't see it as creative, right? So I love that Sandy does in, through her work. Yeah. I would say, Cami, that's you're probably with the majority of folks at the outset who I deal with, and I get to know them through our coaching conversations. And for them, it's just a slug. It's just a slug fest. There's no fun in this. Because when I think of creativity, working with my attractive qualities, I'm, you know, people think, well, you know, I'm water painting and whatever. I'm doing something funky. Right brain. Right brain, dancing, you know, all that stuff. Money, it's not an idea I developed. It's something I read about and I, I sort of totally buy it. We're such a credit-driven world now. And really what my parents were showing me was the capacity to delay gratification. And research has shown that children as early as eight can learn to do that. It's kind of the marshmallow thing. Like if we give you one now, you can have it. But if you wait, right? And it's improved. It doesn't mean they all will, but some will. And they do learn that. And it's the motor that drives the capacity to, for example, in the investment world, accumulate savings that ultimately become investments and ultimately becomes you know, funding for the things we want in the future. I have this thing I want and it's over here. And I have where I am today and there's a gap. And the gap is money I don't have to get there. And so there's a tension. Right? There's attention. We want. It's that impulse. And so a saver gets that we live with attention and fill the gap through our savings. A spender, and people think that they're either one or another, we won't go down that road right now, but they can't live with attention. So the credit card comes out and they immediately release the tension. So I actually think that tension is a good thing. In, it's the right kind of tension. It's the tension between where we are and what we want, and how we can use creativity to close the gap. That's the long way around where I was going with that. And so when people buy into that idea and buy into the why and what they really want, and we get that up there, and then we start to put together a plan so that the numbers will support that, 
then the creativity comes out and all of a sudden all the things that they realize it's like i had this in my hand today at the store it was a something something what did it cost it was 48 dollars i could have bought it in a heartbeat and i had my credit card in hand what happened i put it back wide because that was a step away from that other thing that we talked about me doing and by the way no one's actually said they put cheerios in their muffins but i'm not uh, you know that was my mother's creativity <laughs> on how to stretch up a box of cheerios so creativity actually is massive but where it really gets the power is with the why, with living with that tension, because the tension will drive you to find creative ways to close again. I'm so glad you brought that up too, Steve, because I think there is that tension and it's not something that gets talked about very often or acknowledged. When we hear about tension, we tend to associate a negative handle with it, that we should somehow be devoid of tension or stress is another word. I remember way back, just in my university days, I used to have this relationship, and I can't remember what it might have been Psych 101 that everybody takes, but because I think this is kind of part of it. Is if you think of a U shape, where it's a low number on one side and a high number on the other side, and I'm not doing this right, the point was the too much or too little. Too little is we have no drive. Too much is toxic. But just can that amount in the middle just kind of keep us on a little bit, right? It's that finding that tension balance. That's the kind of tension I'm talking about, which is different than. I can't make next month's rent, and a lot of people relate to that today, as we know, and I don't know how I'm going to pay. That is not the kind of tension I'm talking That's gone to the pain point, and it's probably not going to be helpful for people to kind of solve their problems. So yeah, I agree with you that we tend to kind of poo-poo the idea of tension, but riding that positive wave can be really helpful. Steve, I want to go back to your family life today. Can you tell us about what it was like when you were getting married and how you had money conversations at that point? When I met my wife, who I'll just say this, is a financial person. She also is a financial planner. She's a certified financial planner. She has a master's in business. She manages investments, although she's mostly retired now and did when I met her. So she was a very financy kind of person, right? But that doesn't mean to say that we're necessarily compatible, but it was almost like just in our initial conversations, we were just hearing this likeness in terms of all the things I've mentioned, living within our means, saving a certain mentality, having reserve in the background, buying things that last and then using them until they're worn out and gone. So I do believe that I didn't really ever have to have this conversation, but I always like to say that couples... And really, before they make that commitment, need to have get financially naked with each other. And because I've seen what happens when that doesn't happen. Can you say that again? Because I love this expression. Yeah, I mean, I know it's a kind of, and that's the idea. It's meant to kind of catch people. It's that individuals who are intended to be partners need to be financially naked in front of each other. And what I mean by that is they need to have the conversations about what money means to them. They need to see whether there's that compatibility. And I'll just use extremes because I mentioned it before and I'm going to come back to it. My wife and I, in this count, we were exactly perfectly fit together. And that is that if I said to either or both of you, you know, do you believe the idea that there are people that are either spenders or savers in the world? Do you think everybody kind of falls into one bucket or another? What do you think? I see it as a spectrum. Okay. Some people tend to stay on one side of the spectrum or the other. And then I've observed other people at different times in their life will gravitate toward one side or the other, but they're not necessarily stuck there forever. It's a good point, actually. Amy, what do you think? 
Spectrum is understandable. I think one or the other, sometimes our job is to actually help people who are nor savers spend, you know, because they can. And so, yeah, I see what you're saying. One or the other. Where I'm going with that is I agree with you. It's just not fair to say that it's more that there's a tendency. And the where I would see it show up is that while savers tend to accumulate investments and money and spenders while they're in that particular part of their life is they probably don't. And I think that in particular, that when couples are having that naked conversation that they start to try to get clear on whether that person has a proclivity to spend. And so a spender would be like, wow, we got $5,000 on a bonus or you know, mom gave it to me or whatever it is. And their instinct is, what do we spend it on? That would be the spender's take. I understand it's a simplification. And the saver would be, you know, what can we pay down or where can we put that? And that particular dichotomy can really cause problems in a relationship. You can imagine when there's money coming in and one person saying, bill, 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 go save. The other person's like, no, 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 spend, spend, spend. That's the key one. So disclosure around things like that's around what's saved, we're not saved, and really getting clear on how they see money operating in their lives is a great thing to do way before. Because if you ignore that little voice that says, I can see there's money problems here, but I'm just going to kind of push that down, it tends to not work out. And so people I work with, often you know, 10 years down the road from sort of the union, are now trying to undo that problem that resulted in that, that thing. So my wife and I were, uh, honestly, I knew it was a connection because I thought, yes, somebody, like, gee, we're there. Like, we're- so you got financially naked? We got financially naked. Yeah, we did the full disclosure and we were good with it. And, you know, she wasn't expecting to support me and I wasn't expecting to support her. And we each had our own assets. And uh, we ultimately decided really honestly to pool everything. It didn't make any difference. We don't have children. And there is no us or mine in our house. We have a financial plan. We have a spending plan. We talk once a month about both normally because we update them. Not so much the spending plans. Nothing really much changes there. But my wife does what she loves and that's where her dollars go. And she'll come in and say, I got this for my thing. And that's like, great. I hope it works out. And I'll, I'll say, I got this for my thing. And she'll say, great. We have that money in reserve. And I don't honestly ever recall a stressful conversation with my wife about money. That's fantastic. I want to go back to the getting financially naked part for a moment though, because I'm curious, Steve, as a coach, how do you coach people to have that conversation? Because that can, that can be very awkward. It can be. You can really have some enlightening moments during those conversations. I have some tools that I created. And early on, just a little thing that I use, it's called a money contentment survey. And I developed the need to get to the bottom of things quickly early on in a relationship so we can kind of see what's important, what's not important, but with couples in particular. So when I give them that, I say, here's my instruction. I'm giving you this. I want you to both print a copy, but listen closely. Do not cooperate on this assignment. It's not, it's not what it is. You do yours, you do yours, you bring them back, and we're going to put them on the table and get naked here, metaphorically speaking, and go through that. And it's amazing. I just sit back and listen. I didn't know. I didn't know. They don't know because they haven't had the conversation, or at least. As I like to say, you know, we have when couples have conversations about money, they're the wrong kind of conversations because they're heated. There's a lot of blame, backward looking, so the things we actually can't do anything about. And you know, we don't want to go there, right? We want forward-looking conversations that are about how we stop more a tug of war. The analogy I sort of always use is the tug of war is a rope being pulled in opposite directions, and you're on either end. I would rather 
you feel like this is hoisting a sail where you're both you know, pulling, reefing that sail up. If we're going to pull on something, let's pull in the same direction and hoist that sail and get that thing billowing and going in the direction you want. What would it take to have that happen? Coaching conversations are so much fun. It's just because it's so illuminating and people benefit. And that honestly, you don't really have to tell them anything. You just have to show them some things and they kind of figure it out for themselves. It feels like it sometimes with the right tools. Hey, Steve, if you're talking to a couple, one's a spender and one's a saver, do you just say you're doomed? What's your tips to help? Because again, I think Sandy's point, there is a spectrum. And if they're on opposite ends, maybe that's a big challenge. But if there's some spectrum aspects to it, how do you work with them to help them? I have to tell you, when I perceive that I'm in that space, you know, I sort of take a deep swallow because I know that there is a chance that, that that whole situation will just evolve and they'll, they'll leave coaching because there's just too much. So I always want to come back to the why. And so really, Amy, the answer to that question is, I want to not talk about money. I want to get focused on my why exercises. I want to find some commonality in why. And there always is something that they can agree on. And at least for that piece, can we at least get unified, make that a priority and start voting our dollars towards that? And then sort of gently introduce the idea that if we were doing that, that might mean the money has to be diverted to some other things, you know, some other places where it's currently going. And could you see yourself doing that? I'm not saying not ever. I'm just saying maybe not now. Again, that's that different gratification conversation we had. I always lead in with why. People think I'm going to come in, I'm going to hammer them with a spreadsheet that's got 18,000 numbers, and we're going to hammer that thing out with our little green fields over our counting caps on. No, 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 no. What's one piece of money wisdom that you'd like to share with our listeners that hasn't come up in our conversation yet? There's a book that is really interesting. It's called Scarcity, written by a couple of academics in the U.S. and the East Coast somewhere. It's called Scarcity, Why Having So Little Means So Much. The short answer to your question is to have financial reserve in place, some amount of financial reserve. The money gurus talk about an emergency fund. I don't ever actually use that because I find that most people don't have one and they think the building one would be overwhelming because the amounts they're supposed to save are too substantial. So what I actually feel what people need is just an everyday reserve. It's not when you lose a job, it's when you need a tire for the car sort of thing. What the book gave me was the science behind it. And the science behind it is, is that we have scarcity in our lives on a food, money, oxygen, time. There's a, something I won't go through in detail, except to say that the research shows that it plays with our brains. It makes us, oddly enough, it drops our IQ, it makes us more impulsive, we make poor decisions and we actually keep ourselves more drawn into scarcity. Uh, so the person that needed that thing but didn't do it, now is forced to put it on a credit card. They've gone deeper in. If you really want more satisfaction in your financial lives, we need to solve a problem. It's called building some degree of financial reserve so that when the unexpected happens, I don't even mean losing a job, I just mean the stove goes and you need 500 bucks. It'll be there and we smooth out that disruption. That is my message for folks. If you can do that, find a way to do that. And that's why I don't really ever worry about money because that's what I do. Great advice. Steve, given where you are right now in your life at this moment, what gives you the most satisfaction? Being a benefit to people. And I'm sure you, you know, you're both professional women, so you'll understand. It's just having somebody say, wow, this is really helpful. And to have people say, we just never would have gotten here alone. Again, I'm not listening, but they're right because it's not just that they necessarily didn't know what they needed to do, but there's so many other noises and voices and videos and the books, and they just need somebody to sit down and have the conversation and listen. 
and then go, wow, this was so helpful. I mean, that's, I don't know how you put a price on that. So I just want, I want more and more of those moments. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. And Steve, to wrap up our conversation today, we're curious, what's your next money conversation going to be? It's pretty benign, really. It's just my wife and I will just talk about some investments and the slight the allocation and how we're invested that we've been talking about. And it's just very ordinary. Yeah. So just uh just to keep our ship pointed pointed in the right direction. It's that we don't we don't ever do anything like that until we both agree that it's the right thing to do. So we've got one of those uh, coming up on the weekend. Yeah. Good luck with that conversation. It sounds like you guys <laughs> are both in a good spot to be able to have it. We really appreciate the conversation with you today and are inspired by all the things that you do with the people you work with to open up money conversations and to be a sounding board and to give some guidance and direction. That's so important. Thank you, Sandy. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's been great. I've enjoyed this. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Cammie. This is Cammie with another personal finance insight. During our conversation with Steve Demeray, He talks about the importance of keeping a cash reserve. As Steve mentions, cash reserves are also called emergency reserves. They are also referred to as rainy day funds, lifestyle reserves, or sleep well at night funds. What we'd recommend is calling the reserve by whatever name has meaning to you and will emotionally connect you to its purpose. This emotional connection is especially important for people who have a hard time keeping a cash reserve in place. Cash reserves play several roles in a personal financial plan. First, they ensure that you have some funds readily available to cover unexpected expenses that arise, and they help to protect against an unexpected change in income. The reserve is also helpful because it's invested in cash, so you don't have to worry about the daily volatility of the stock market or the double-digit interest rate of a credit card. Most importantly, the cash reserve provides the psychic benefit of knowing you have money on hand for whenever you need it, which can provide important peace of mind regardless of the size of your balance sheet. There's no single formula that dictates how much money you should keep in your cash reserve. At Experient, we often start by suggesting clients set aside enough money to cover large expenses that are coming up over the next year, like a big income tax bill or down payment on a home. We then recommend that they consider also setting aside cash to cover 3 to 12 months of living expenses. This is a wide range and we'll usually provide a specific recommendation based on the client's situation their annual lifestyle expenses, the amount of liquid investments available outside of the retirement accounts that they could easily sell the cash if they needed, their specific income sources, and other personal factors. Some clients are comfortable skipping the lifestyle portion of the cash reserve completely because they're very comfortable with the idea of selling liquid investments to fund unexpected cash needs. Others like the cash reserve time period along the 3 to 12 month time range that we've recommended. More cautious clients prefer to have a cash reserve to cover an 18 or 24 month period. And still others throw the lifestyle reserve idea out the window and prefer to instead always keep some amount of cash, whether it's 100,000, 250,000, a million, or some other amount, always on hand and available because it allows them to sleep better at night. When determining if and how much cash reserve you want to keep, make sure the amount has meaning to you and is affordable. Also, Give thought to where you want to keep their cash reserve. If you're someone who will be tempted to spend a pile of money hanging out in your checking or brokerage account on discretionary items, consider keeping the money in a separate account that you're not looking at all the time to keep the temptation to spend at bay. Also, be sure to have a plan in place to replenish the cash reserve over time if and when you tap into it. If you're not convinced you need a cash reserve, 
Stress test this by imagining yourself in a variety of different situations, like losing your job, facing an unexpected medical bill that requires you to pay a lot of money out of pocket, needing to replace your washer and dryer, or damaging your car and needing to fix or replace it. If one or more of these situations unfolded over the next year, how would you cover the expenses? Would a cash reserve mentally and or financially help you deal with the situation? The answer to this question is a good indication of how you should proceed. And if you're not sure, play it safe and set aside a cash reserve to see if it works for you. Always remember, the key to cash reserves is to make you feel secure and ready when life throws a spending curveball at you. We hope you enjoyed today's financial insight. For more, you can listen to the end of other Money Tales podcasts, episodes, or go to our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com forward slash Fathom. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.